0: Well, good morning, everyone. It is the most wonderful time of the year. It is Christmas time. It's the holidays, somewhere between Halloween and Christmas. We just all go crazy. Something happens and we just all go crazy. And I think the reason why Christmas begins earlier and earlier every year. If we can just put a good motivation on that, I think it's because we love Christmas. I know some of us in this room don't. I won't name names, but um, some of us don't like it. But I think one of the reasons why it just starts getting closer and closer to Thanksgiving, and then you know we're going to pretty soon start seeing Christmas trees sold alongside of Fourth of July fireworks. It's just going to, you know, happy Fourth of July and Merry Christmas to you all. I personally love the Christmas season. I always feel like it goes by too quickly. I started listening to Christmas music in September. Call me a heretic. I will own it. I love Christmas. I love it. Always feel like it goes by too quickly. So I want to take the next three weeks to examine the scriptures and what they have to say to us about Christmas. I want to examine the scriptures and I want to do it in a little bit of a different way. I was uh, reading this last week, uh, Charles Dickens' uh, beautiful short story, A Christmas Carol, was free on Kindle, it might still be, so go look it up, it was free on Kindle. Downloaded that instantly, started reading it, remembered how much I thoroughly enjoy that story, and how thoroughly redemptive it is, what, what grace and compassion and love produce in somebody's life. It's a very, very good story, but... As you remember, um, Ebenezer Scrooge is taken on a journey with the ghost of Christmas past, present, and future. And he learns a lot. He learns a lot about himself. He learns a lot about Christmas. He learns a lot about everyone else. And I thought it would be fun to kind of let... That be our guide in these next three weeks. We're going to look at, if you will, the ghost of Christmas past biblically. We're going to look at the ghost of Christmas present and the ghost of Christmas future without ghosts so we don't scare any kids. But I want to put ourselves in the sandals of Mary and Joseph. That will be our present when Jesus was born. That will be the present, and we'll examine that next week. I want to look back before Jesus was born, and we'll call that the past, and we'll look at what the Old Testament Israelites were feeling and set the stage for why Christmas is so amazing, why that first Christmas was so hopeful and filled with uh, amazement. And then I want to look to the future. I think we, we look at Jesus as the, the little baby in a manger. We open our Christmas presents. We take down the lights after everything's done and we just stick little baby Jesus back in the box of the manger set and we're done. And it really isn't until Easter that we remember him as conqueror. And so I want to just remind us that a little bit earlier than Easter. So we'll look at past, present, and future over the next three weeks. What was Christmas like before Christ was born? What was the expectation of the Messiah before the Messiah came? Charles Dickens, in 1843, writing A Christmas Carol, Began the story this way. Marley was dead to begin with. There's no doubt whatever about that. Old Marley was as dead as a doornail. This must be distinctly understood or nothing wonderful can come of the story I am going to relate. Some might say that is a terrible way to open a story. Marley was dead to begin with. Man, that's morbid. You look at the cover, A Christmas Carol, there's a little wreath and it's green and beautiful. And hey, Christmas, Marley was dead. It doesn't seem appropriate. It's morbid. It's dark. It's sad. And it is. But just as Dickens says about his story, I believe the same is true about examining the biblical narrative of Christmas Dickens says, nothing wonderful can come from the story if you don't understand the death of Marley, if you don't understand the deadness of Marley. We do this in our Christmas carols. I don't know if you've noticed. There are some Christmas carols, and we're going to sing some of them, that are just funeral dirges. They're just laments. It's like we should turn the lights off, light a candle, and cry, and mourn, and weep. One of my favorites... O come, O come, Emmanuel. Listen to these words. O come, O come, Emmanuel. And ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here. So they're mourning, they're lonely, and they're in exile until the Son of God appear. O come, thou rod of Jesse, free. So they're in captivity. Free thine own from Satan's tyranny. From depths of hell thy people save and give them victory over the grave hell and the grave in Christmas songs. Oh, come, thou Dayspring, come and cheer our spirits by thine Advent, or thy coming here. Cheer us, we're depressed. Disperse the gloomy clouds of night, and death's dark shadows put to flight. Now you say, yeah, but Patrick, you're missing the refrain. Rejoice, rejoice, and yes, joy, amen, Christmas, happiness. I love it. But the rejoicing is not as powerful as it should be without the dark, gloomy clouds of night, without death's dark shadows surrounding them. We need that as the backdrop, and not just to make the story better, but because that's the reality of what the story is. We need that as the backdrop. Rejoice is only as happy as the bad news beforehand. Rejoices only happy if hopelessness is there to begin with. I don't know if you've ever been in a place of utter hopelessness. I don't know if I've ever been in a place of utter hopelessness. I've been hopeless, but complete utter hopelessness. Why do we get there? Because you and I are a hopeful. People, we were designed, we were hardwired by God for hope. Our souls were designed for longing and satisfaction. Hope is always an object. It's always an expectation. You're always hoping for something, something that you're wanting and you're longing for. And if we're honest, all of our happiest moments in life are hope-filled moments, and all of our deepest, darkest moments in life are hope-dashed moments. It can be as simple as watching a basketball game. Your team is down by two points with three seconds left, and your star player shoots a three-point shot to win the game, buzzer beater, and the ball goes up, hits the rim, bounces out. No basket, no score. You lose, even though you were on your feet saying, we can do this, this is perfect. Hope is dashed. That's simple. That's easy. That's, that's really nothing It can be as devastating as finding out that the child that you've been carrying for six months when you go to get a routine ultrasound has no heartbeat. And hope is dashed. What do you do in those moments? Everywhere in between is life. That's life. If you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to Isaiah chapter 59? Isaiah chapter 59. I want us to think about the past before Jesus was born and see the utter hopelessness before Christmas that would pave the way for hope to be seen and understood as a reality. Isaiah 59 is one of the most hopeless moments in the history of Israel. It's a dark time, and yet in thy dark streets shineth the everlasting life. This is about to break upon. Hope is about to break into their hopelessness. We're going to talk a lot about hope over the next three weeks, and so I want to give you just a little bit of a, a summary, four summary statements about hope. Hope is, the, um, sorry, number one, a Christmas, Christmas story is a story of hope. It's filled with hope. Through and through, Christmas is all about hope. If you don't understand hope you won't understand christmas so to understand christmas rightly we need to understand the hope that's found inside of it number two the doorway to hope is hopelessness the doorway to hope is hopelessness christmas is a story of hope number one and the reason why it's a story of hope that we can enjoy is because there was hopelessness before christmas the first christmas And to get to a place of hope, to have a doorway to enter into hope, we must admit our hopelessness. Number three, for hope to be true and reliable, it must fix what is broken. For hope to be true and reliable, it must fix what is broken. Say, I have a problem, and you look to something to try and solve that problem, and you place your hope in that thing And when it does not meet your expectations to solve the problem that you have, then you do not have hope. Your hope has been dashed. For hope to be true and reliable, it must fix what is broken. That's why the gospel is our greatest hope. It fixes the greatest brokenness that we have. And it announces to us that though we die, we will never die. It announces to us that this world is groaning and desiring to be made whole again. It's broken. It's incomplete. It's shattered. And Jesus came to say, I've come to bring hope. And one day I will recreate this world as a new heaven, new earth. No sin, no death. Hope must be able to fix what is broken if it's going to be true and reliable. And number four, hope is not a circumstance or a situation or a location, or an experience, et cetera, et cetera. Hope is a person. Hope is Jesus Christ. We can place our hopes in circumstances to give us joy, in situations to give us happy families, in locations. Oh, if only we lived in a better place or experiences. Oh, if only I had lived this or could experience that, I would be satisfied. No, hope is none of those things. Hope is a person. That's Jesus Christ. We find the Israelites, the Old Testament Israelites, hundreds of years before Jesus comes on the scene as a little baby boy in Isaiah 59, totally hopeless, totally broken. The context is that Israel had just been held captive in Babylon. They're finally returning home. Jerusalem, their home, is a mess. There's no city walls, there's no temple, there's no government, there's no laws. There's no leadership, there's no justice, there's no control, there's only poverty, violence, devastating hopelessness. They're coming back saying, we're free, but this isn't the freedom that we were looking for. And as we go through this passage, you'll see interaction between God and the Israelites. It's broken up very simply for us in four stanzas, if you will. God speaks to them, they speak to him, God speaks to them, they speak to him, back and forth, back and forth. And as we go through it, I think you'll see their hopelessness, but there are things that they're hoping for that are good and things that they're desiring to satisfy their hearts that aren't good. And that's one of the reasons why they missed, as a whole, the nation of Israel missed the first Christmas and the hope that was brought in the first Christmas. Four simple points as we go through. We're just going to take the outline of the passage as our outline this morning. Number one, we'll start in verse one. Israel makes a false charge. Verse one is just Israel's false charge. Isaiah chapter 59, verse one says this. Behold, the Lord's hand is not so short that it cannot save, nor is his ear so dull that it cannot hear. Now, this is God ultimately responding to the false charge that the Israelites had made. They're saying, God, where are you? We need your help. We are hopeless apart from you and you don't seem to be stepping in. We want justice. We want help. We are involved in violence and poverty. We need you. Come. But maybe your hand is short. Maybe you can't reach us is what they're saying. Maybe you can't save us. You can't get to us. Or maybe you can't hear us. Your ears are dull and you can't hear us. Obviously, we know that that's not true. But here's the point that I want to make in this verse. We've been there, right? We've been in a place where in our utter hopelessness, we say, God, where are you? Where are you? And here's the danger. When you allow yourself to start working through these questions, start questioning God, this is the biggest problem. You will never run to someone that you don't think can save you. Once you get to a place where you view God as unable to save you, you're going to go somewhere else. Ultimately, that's where the Israelites are going to turn to. They're going to go somewhere else. God, you're obviously not stepping in to save us, so we'll go somewhere else. You will never run to somebody for help when you don't ultimately believe that that someone can save you. God can save. Turn to Amos. Amos, Obadiah, Jonah you go to Amos, just a couple chapters over, closer to the New Testament, you'll see God telling the Israelites, no, no, it's not me, it's you. It's like the opposite of every breakup story. Oh, no, 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 don't worry, don't worry. It's not you, it's me. No, no, God's saying, no, no, it's not me, it's you. You are the problem. And he says it very clearly here in Amos chapter 4, verse 6. I gave you also cleanness of teeth in all your cities and lack of bread in all your places, but you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. The issue is I was here and though there were difficult times and prosperous times, I was here to ultimately comfort you, but you didn't return. Now I'm going to try and get your attention. I withheld the rain from you while there were still three months until harvest. Then I would send rain on one city and on another city. I would not send rain. One part would be rained on, while the other part not rained on would dry up. So two or three cities would stagger to another city to drink water, but would not be satisfied. You're looking for satisfaction somewhere, and I'm trying to point to the side, hello, I can do this, repent, turn to me, but you did not return to me. So I smote you with scorching wind and mildew, and the caterpillar was devouring your many gardens and vineyards, fig trees and olive trees, but you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I sent a plague among you after the manner of Egypt. I slew your young men by the sword, along with the captured horses, and I made the stench of your camp rise up in your nostrils, yet you have not returned to me. I'm devastating you to try and get your attention now. You are reaping what you have sown, and I told you if you do not obey and you do not repent, I will destroy you. And you're not turning. I overthrew you, verse 11, as God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah, and you were like a firebrand snatched from a blaze. You would not return to me, declares the Lord. Therefore, thus I will do to you, O Israel, because I will do this to you. Prepare to meet your God, O Israel. For behold, he who forms mountains and creates the wind and declares to man what are his thoughts, he who makes dawn into darkness and treads on the high places of the earth, the Lord God of hosts is his name. I'm here, I'm waiting, I have the power, and it's obvious I have the power to help you, but you have not returned. No, Israel, I am not the problem, you are. I am not the problem, you are. Now, we find ourselves in verse 1, because when circumstances go bad, not only do we ask God questions like, where are you, can you save me? But when circumstances go bad, our first inclination is not to say we are the problem. Our first inclination is to say something else is the problem. I have yet to see, and there have been many protests in the last couple of months even, I've yet to see a protester with a sign that says, don't worry, I'm the problem, and I'll take care of myself. I've yet to see that. Remember G.K. Chesterton wrote in a column, a newspaper once asked, what is wrong with our world? And he wrote back, sirs, I am, signed G.K. Chesterton, I'm the problem. Everybody around us says you're the problem. That's the problem. Something else is the problem. And Israel was saying that, God, you must be the problem. Maybe we say other people are the problem. Other things around us are the problem. Sometimes we put it in cute little phrases like, I have a bad marriage. Um, there's no such, no such thing as a bad marriage. It's bad people. Right. I am a bad person. I'm a bad person. People say um, this is a bad neighborhood. Like the street signs, you know, at night are just bending over, whacking people like. No, the neighborhood's fine. It's people that are bad. We are the problem. We are the problem. And that's why God says to Israel, it's you. Verse two, God speaks. Israel gave a false charge in verse one and in verses two through eight point number two God gives a true charge God says nope it's not me it's you it's your sin there is serious sin that needs to be addressed and he says it this way verse two but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear Why? What are these sins? Because your hands are defiled with blood, your fingers with iniquity, your lips have spoken falsehood, your tongue mutters wickedness. No one sues righteously and no one pleads honestly. They trust in confusion and speak lies. They conceive mischief and bring forth iniquity. And it would be one thing if they themselves were filled with sin, but their sin, as he's going to go on in verse five breeds sin that others are involved in. They catch others to come be involved in their sin. It's not enough for me to sin on my own. I need others to be involved in my sin. It's just like Romans chapter 1 where um, people give hearty approval to others sinning along with them. Verse 5, They hatch adder's eggs and weave the spider's web. He who eats of their eggs dies, and from that which is crushed a snake breaks forth. So they're breeding forth more sin and sinners that are... Sinning and in more ways, in gross ways. Verse 6, their webs will not become clothing, nor will they cover themselves with their work. So they're trying to hide themselves. They know ultimately what they're doing is wrong, and they're trying to cover themselves. Whether this is trying to atone for their own um, sinful deeds with their sinful deeds, whether this is them trying to make a cover physically for themselves, um And make their evil deeds produce comfort and satisfaction. Whatever it is, the bottom line is it's not working because their works are works of iniquity, and an act of violence is in their hands. Their feet run to evil, they hasten to shed innocent blood, their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity, devastation and destruction are in their highways, they do not know the way of peace, and there is no justice in their tracks. They have made their paths crooked. Whoever treads on them does not know peace. Maybe those last two verses are familiar ring in your ear that Paul quotes those in Romans chapter three about us, about all humans, about people that are born totally depraved, hopeless in their own conditions. So God says, no, no, it's not me. It's you. I'm not far off. You are pushing me away because of your sin. And they get it. Israel admits it. They own it. Number three, point number three, Israel confesses. Israel's confession, and it's a good one. There's some in it that we're going to look at that's not good, but they do confess. Let's look at it. This is verses 19 through 15, or I'm sorry, verse 9 through 15. Israel makes a confession based on God's true charge. Therefore, verse 9, justice is far from us. So now God's done talking you, you, you. Now they're talking we, 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 us. Justice is far from us. Righteousness does not overtake us. What are they wanting? They're wanting justice. They're wanting righteousness, but I would say I don't think that it's the righteousness of God or the righteousness that would be indwelling in them. I believe it's a righteousness that would lead to a happier land, a peaceful place, um, as they're asking for justice. There's some in here that's good. They're admitting they're sinners. But as we'll look at, there's a little bit in it that they're saying, yeah, we're sinners, but but that's not the biggest problem that we have. Let's continue. They say, we hope for light, but behold, darkness. We hope for brightness, but we walk in gloom. We grope along the wall like blind men. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at midday as in the twilight. Among those who are vigorous, we are like dead men. All of us growl like bears and moan sadly like doves. We hope for justice, but there is none. For salvation, but it is far from us. Why is justice far away? Why is salvation far away? Because, verse 12, our transgressions are multiplied before you and our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us and we know our iniquities. Yes, God, we own it. We are sinners. We know that transgressing and denying the Lord and turning away from our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving in and uttering from the heart, lying words, justice is turned back because of that. And righteousness stands afar away because of that. For truth has stumbled in the street. Uprightness cannot enter. Yes, truth is lacking And he who turns aside from evil makes himself a prey. So they say, Yes, God, we admit we are sinners. But you can see there's a little bit of a thread in here. If you go back up to verse 11, they they say, We are hoping for justice, we want salvation. The question is, Salvation from what? And they say, We know we're not getting it because we are sinners. We want justice, and we want salvation from something, and we know we're not getting it because we are sinners. So we have to fix the sin in order to get the justice and salvation that we want. Now, we know, not necessarily from this passage, but we know from the history of the Old Testament and the history of the New Testament, Jesus was rejected As Messiah by the Jews on a grand scale obviously there were many Jews that believed in him as the Messiah and the Savior of the world but he was rejected by most because they were looking for salvation from oppression justice in the form of no more evil taxation no more wicked Romans no more faulty leadership and false governance we don't want that anymore And I don't want to be too critical of this passage because, again, I think there are things in here that are right and they are admitting their sin. But based on history, we know that there's an aspect where they are admitting we are sinners and we'll fix that so that we can get what we ultimately want. God's not coming to save us from our oppressors because of our sin. So let's fix our sin so we can get ultimate salvation from our oppressive enemies. We come back to our city our land is a disaster. Our city is destroyed. Temple is not built. Walls around the city are crumbled. We have nothing. God, save us. And God says, I, I, I won't. You are a sinful people. And so they say, fine, deal with my sin so that we can deal with these other problems. I think ultimately we see that Israel as a whole was hoping for a Messiah and a Savior to come and save them first and foremost from their enemies, from oppressive men and leaders that would cause wickedness and evil to flourish. And here they say, yes, we know we are the problem. We need to fix this. But the interesting thing is in this, God hears and then God speaks up. Israel confesses, they admit, and there is good in their confession, And God then intervenes. Number four, point number four, God's intervention. Verses 15 through the end of the chapter in verse 21, God intervenes. God hears and God speaks. Israel gave a false charge. God gave a true charge. Israel then confesses and God intervenes. And he says this, the Lord saw, middle of verse 15, and it was displeasing in his sight that there was no justice he saw that there was no man and was astonished that there was no one to intercede. No one is going to bring peace. And his own arm brought salvation to him. His righteousness upheld him. He put, on a righteous, he put on righteousness like a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself with zeal as a mantle. According to their deeds, so he will repay. Wrath to his adversaries, recompense to his enemies... To the coastlands he will make recompense, so they will fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. For he will come like a rushing stream, which the wind of the Lord drives. So there is salvation there from oppression. God says it's as if he's putting on armor to go fight. There's imagery. I'm going to put on armor to go to battle against evil. I will fight against your enemies, Israel. I will defeat them. But then he says this, verse 20, a redeemer will come to Zion and to those who turn from transgression in Jacob declares the Lord. This is the hope. This is Christmas. A redeemer is going to come and he is going to redeem. But as for me, verse 21, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit, which is upon you, and my words, which I have put in your mouth, shall not depart from your mouth, nor from the mouth of your offspring, nor from the mouth of your offspring's offspring, says the Lord, from now and forever. This is the new covenant. This is the eternal covenant that God is making with Israel, and we've been grafted into that covenant based on the work of the Redeemer. So Jesus is going to come and God says, I will send somebody who will get rid of your enemies. But there's an even bigger problem, your transgressions. And I will send a redeemer to save you from those transgressions. Israel was in utter hopelessness, but they were in utter hopelessness about their circumstances. They were in utter hopelessness about their government or lack thereof, about their peace Only those who realized what was happening when Jesus was born were the ones that said, no, my greatest hopelessness is not the government, not Rome. My greatest hopelessness is my sin. God speaks to that here. And again, I think some of them get this. But I I believe, again, based on history and based on the rest of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament, many did not. Their hopelessness was a doorway to hope only for redemption from oppressors. When God said, no, I'm going to promise something even better, even better. What did God promise? Go to Genesis chapter three. We're going to take a little tour here. As we're thinking about placing ourselves in the sandals of the Old Testament Israelites waiting for for a messiah to come what were they waiting for what were the clues there are so many in the bible so i think we're only going to cover maybe six or seven of them what were the clues what was promised what hope was promised to israel genesis chapter 3 verse 15 the first announcement the first promise of hope I will put enmity between you and the woman, Genesis 3.15, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head. You shall bruise him on the heel. The serpent that brought the wickedness down here into the garden that deceived you, that tempted you, the serpent, the crafty one, there will come a day when he is destroyed. There will come a day when he is no more. And the reason why? is because there will come one, a seed from your offspring that will do this. So the promise, there is going to come somebody from Adam and Eve that will destroy the work of Satan. I believe that Eve and Adam believed that. They desired that. They hoped for that. I believe they hoped for it so much that in chapter 4, verse 1, they had relations, they conceived, they gave birth to Cain, And she said, I have gotten a man child with the help of the Lord. The word Cain, the name Cain means this man, the man, the Lord has given. Now, obviously. It might just be, hey, God gave me a little baby boy, this man. There's a lot of people, though, who think that Eve is saying this is the man that God promised. This is the seed. There's a serpent somewhere in this garden. He doesn't, crawl, he doesn't crawl around anymore. He um, slithers on his belly. So this seed's going to grow up. He's going to find him. He's going to step on his head and we're done. What faith. And yet the timetable is just a little bit off. So God promises through your lineage, there will come a child that will do this work. Go to chapter 12. Chapter 12, verse 3. The promise made to Abram, David Reisman read this last week. I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So now we know that there is coming a human child based on 315. And we also know that this child is going to be an Israelite because he's coming from the line of Abraham now, Abraham's descendants. So this will be a Jewish child, an Israelite child who in him All of the families of the earth will be blessed. Go to Genesis 49, verse 10. Over time, the prophecies just get more specific and more specific. It starts with, there's going to be a man who destroys evil. And then it starts to get very specific. Genesis 49, verse 10 This is Jacob talking to Judah, and he says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Now, this in its own setting would just mean there's going to be a king, and the king's not going to depart from the line of Judah. But when it's coupled with other prophecies, we know that the Messiah is going to be a king, and that Messiah, because he's the king, has to come from the line of Judah. So now we have Genesis 3 tells us, God's going to send a human child to bring hope. And then Genesis 12, that child is going to be of the line of Abram, of the line of the Israelite people. And then we find out he's going to be a king in the tribe of Judah, in the lineage of Judah. So it keeps getting more specific. Now go to 2 Samuel. We'll jump a little bit here because of time. 2 Samuel chapter 7, Davidic Covenant. Part of this is just for David, Part of this is just for David and his son, and then part of this is for David and his great-great-great-great-great-grandson, the Messiah. We'll just jump down to the part that's for the Messiah. Chapter seven, Second Samuel chapter seven, verse 13. "He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever." Again, this is tricky in the Davidic covenant because God is saying, David, I know you wanted to build me a house. You're not going to be able to, but I promise you your son will. So part of this is Solomon. But the last part of this can't be Solomon because he's dead as a doornail as Marley was. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Solomon's kingdom ended. It was split. This has to be speaking of another king, a greater king, a better king, a king whose kingdom will never be taken away. Go to Isaiah chapter seven. Some of these you will be familiar with. Isaiah chapter seven, verse 14, you are familiar with. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child, as Brian read this morning, and bear a son and she will call his name Emmanuel, God with us. This is another one of those really cool prophecies. It's a near-far prophecy because um, Isaiah was asking for a sign. Um, Ahaz is the one that ultimately is able to ask and say, God, I want this, and he asks for an impossible sign, and God says, I'll do that now and I'll do that later. I'll do that now and I'll do that later, and the one who's coming later will be One who can be called God with us. God will tabernacle with us, will make his dwelling place among us. He won't just wear humanity. He will be human. The God of the universe, God will be with us. So now we know it's not just a human. It was just a human in our minds in Genesis 3 that's just going to defeat a snake. And now we know that human is going to be God and God will defeat all evil. Go a couple chapters over Isaiah chapter nine, verse six, a child will be born to us. A son will be given and the government will rest on his shoulders and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Now, it's here that I just want to be gracious with Israel. Because you read that and you say, great, there'll be no end of his government. His kingdom will be established to uphold righteousness and justice. This is great. That's what we want. I believe a lot of the Israelites looked to these parts of the prophecies and clung to those because their greatest hopelessness was their oppressors. When there are so many other prophecies that deal with the Messiah coming to save from sin. Isaiah 53. You have to couple this with Isaiah 53, that the suffering servant's going to come and remove our transgressions and our sin as it's laid upon him and he is pierced for our iniquities. Yes, he is a king and a ruler, But he came in a way that we wouldn't expect. He came in a way that Israel definitely didn't expect. Micah chapter 5, verse 2, you can write it down, we don't have time, said that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. This baby's going to be born in Bethlehem. So it keeps on getting narrower and narrower, more specific and more specific so that we know, there are are theologians that speculate that um, doing the math from Daniel's prophecy in Daniel chapter 9, doing the math, you could figure out that in Mary's generation, the Messiah is going to come. You could figure that out. And so if you know the Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem, the Messiah is going to be born of the lineage of David and the line of Judah, uh, an Israelite, you, got, you can narrow it down. I mean, you're still dealing with hundreds of thousands of people, but you can narrow it down. And many people were wondering, is the Messiah going to come through me when God says, I will send a redeemer in Isaiah 59 I think that people thought, yes, great, it's about time that we had freedom from oppression. God speaks into humanity. In every single book, there is hope. In every single prophet that comes, there is hope. There is hope. But as I said, one of the things that happens when we study the life of Jesus is that we realize they did not receive that hope, they rejected their hope, they rejected their Messiah. Why? Because they were hoping for something specific. Their hopelessness was in their political area. Their hopelessness was in their governmental control. And so they cried out, we're hopeless, send us a new political ruler. But very few came to the place where Jesus says, Matthew 5, blessed are the poor in spirit. Not poor in government, poor in spirit. I need you to come fix me because I'm the problem. Not, I need you to come fix the government because the government's the problem. If only we had a better government. I hear a lot of brothers and sisters pray that prayer for our government. And yes, we can pray it. But can I just remind you that will not change anything. Jesus becomes king in the millennial kingdom. And in a thousand years, reigning and ruling in righteousness, peace and justice People say, I don't want him to be my king. And they rebel against him. So we can have him as our king and still have rebellion. Or we can just say, you know what? I'm the problem. Fix me. And I will do my job as a believer to evangelize the lost. Luke 18, as we studied this morning, after the passage that we studied this morning, the tax collector says, Be merciful to me, the sinner. Be merciful to me, the sinner. Not looking at anybody else. There's nothing else that needs to be changed in my mind. The only thing that needs desperate fixing right now is me. Those are the people, by the way, Simeon and Anna, that got it when Jesus comes onto the scene. They figured it out. They knew it because they weren't hoping for freedom from oppression from Rome. They were hoping for freedom from the slavery that they had to sin. And so they're saying, this is the one that's going to save us. That's why John says, the Lamb of God who takes away the oppression of the Romans. No, the sin of of the world. That's why those that knew him as their Messiah knew it because their greatest hopelessness was their sinful condition and nothing else. Why do we miss Christmas? Why do we miss the point of it? I think we miss the point when we look at others and we say, oh, they don't get it. If they could figure it out, we don't get it. We need Jesus to remind us of our hopelessness. That's why the songs are the funeral dirges, that they are, to remind us. We can rejoice because we've been saved from the utter hopelessness of our sinful condition. The doorway to real hope is proclaiming your own hopelessness. You have to do that. The Christmas story is one of hope. And hope, if it's going to be true and reliable, has to fix what is broken And hope is a person, not a circumstance. But the bottom line is to understand true hope, you have to understand your sinful hopelessness. Sometimes we look to other things to satisfy us because we're saying, God, this is broken. I need this to be fixed. Please come and fix it. We look to people. We look to things. If only this thing can help fix my situation. Christmas is a great example at its consumerism roots, all it says is if you get more gifts, you'll be happier. So my hopelessness and the fact that I don't have what I want will be cured by Christmas by people giving me what I need. And then you open up all your presents and there's that one thing that you wanted. Put it on your list. Don't know why anybody didn't get it for you. And you're sad. Christmas hasn't even ended. December 25th is still the day. And you're sad because there's no more presents. Ugh ecclesiastes is right it's all vanity if you're looking for this world to satisfy you things won't satisfy people won't ultimately satisfy i heard a wife say the other day actually no it wasn't a wife it was um somebody looking for a um, husband it was a woman looking for a husband And she said, I don't understand why it's so hard to find a godly man, believer, godly woman. I don't know why it's so hard to find a godly man, because at the end of the day, all I want is somebody who will make me happy. And I thought, boy, I don't want to be your husband. (laughs) You're just set up for failure. If that's what you want, all I want is some guy to make me happy. You're placing your hope in somebody, a finite person that we'll not be able to do the job that God has promised to do to satisfy your infinite soul. Anytime we look for finite things, and it's totally fine to be pleased by and enjoy and satisfied by finite things, but anytime we look for finite things to satisfy our souls, we will wind up depressed because no amount of finite things can satisfy an infinite soul. What is a biblical view of Marriage. It's a flawed person, married to a flawed person, living in a flawed world with a faithful God who can satisfy their deepest longings because they can't. That's marriage. So what do you place your hope in? Why do you place it there? If somebody were to ask you, what is it that you're looking for to give you ultimate satisfaction, what would your answer be and why? I think Israel's answer would have been, oh, we're looking for God to send a redeemer so that we can be saved from oppressive people to establish peace, shalom in our land. Yes, God has promised to do that, but that's not the greatest problem. The greatest problem is our sin. We were in despair as unbelievers because Romans 3.23 says we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and because we've all sinned, none of us is free. And Romans 6.23 says that the wages of that sin that we have all committed is death. That's death. If we don't understand the badness of that bad news and our sinful condition and our hopelessness, we will never find a doorway to real hope in Jesus Christ. We'll find it elsewhere. We will look elsewhere. But if we understand the despair that we are in because of our sin, then we will say with the Christmas carol, rejoice. Emmanuel has come. Rejoice. Can I just say it this way? Maybe some of us need to abandon hope in other people maybe we need to stop hoping in other people to satisfy maybe we need to abandon hope in a job satisfying a possession a thing or an experience if only i had this or could do that all of us need to abandon all hope in those things ever giving us true joy again please hear me they can satisfy you and and you can enjoy them amen and amen god gave great gifts temporal gifts to be enjoyed But a good test of whether you are just enjoying them the way they're supposed to be enjoyed or whether you are looking for soul satisfaction from them is what happens when they're taken away, agitated. What happens when your your boat is bumped a little bit and it gets a little rocky? If your hope is in Jesus Christ saving you from your sins, nothing can affect that. Nothing can affect it. As we celebrate this Christmas season, may we always remember and may we never forget the true hopelessness of our sin. May we not point fingers, say, yeah, that's the problem. They're the problem. May we hold our protest sign high and say, I'm the problem. It's me. And thereby open the doorway of hope in Jesus Christ. Hope was born when Jesus was born because Jesus came to conquer sin once and for all. And that's what we'll talk about next week. Father, we thank you for... Hope, true hope being born in Jesus Christ. And I do pray that we would remember our hopelessness before Christ came. We would remember our hopeless state in our sins before our precious Savior redeemed us and set us free. And even as we sing, may we sing with the mindset of those Old Testament Israelites. The ones like Simeon, the ones like Anna, the ones who were waiting for a Redeemer to come to save them from themselves because they had nothing but the wrath of God to face for their sins. And as we think of that, may we say all the more loudly, rejoice. God with us has come so we can rejoice.